Good morning, everybody. And Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. You guys, we, we all made it through 2020 and we all welcome this change in the calendar with hopes that this coming year will be a little bit better. Uh, but we also enter this year with a bit of trepidation that's a little bit different from usual because while a new year does bring a renewed chance that things will change, we are dragging a lot of the baggage from last year into 2021. And so uh, it's like we enter the new year, but just narrowly escaping 2020. In fact, if you guys were watching NBC for their New Year's countdown, their hashtag was hashtag escape 2020. And we may be wondering with all this kind of feeling that we, we just narrowly got by, where was God this last year? Because perhaps he was hard to see. And maybe you're a little anxious because you're hoping that it doesn't happen again. Well, the book of Esther is this fascinating narrative because it is the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. God is absent from the text. For many of us, this may feel similar to maybe your current experience of your life right now, that God is absent from the text of your lives. For generations, Jews and Christians have faithfully found that God's hand is there in this powerful tale, that even though his name is absent from the text, God is not missing from the story. His presence is there, it's just hidden. And if we can train ourselves to find God in the book of Esther, maybe we'll be able to find God in our lives as well. Now, the book of Esther that we're going to be going through this year is an interesting piece of literature. It's actually meant to be read in its entirety from start to finish and meant to be read multiple times. When it's read like this, we're actually better able to see the way the story interacts with itself the irony, the contrast between the characters and the events, the scandal, and even the humor that's found in Esther. In fact, the whole book is set up as this massive turning point in the middle of the story, but those things are hard to see if you just read it in pieces. Now, unfortunately, reading this book from start to finish multiple times is not going to work out well for our services. So I want to encourage you just to read the story in your Bible when you have a moment this week or in the coming weeks. If you're strapped for time, but you can spare about 10 minutes, check out the Esther Overview video by Bible Project on YouTube. You can even check it out after you watch this service. They've got a fun and kind of compact way of taking you through the story in a really short amount of time. But for us this morning, I do want to familiarize all of us, all of you, with the plot because we're going to be plowing through this book. And so here is our summary of the book of Esther. So the story of Esther is set during the reign of Persian King Xerxes in the city of Susa, a little less than 500 years before Jesus was born. This occurs after the Babylonian exile. So some Jews were allowed to return to Palestine, but others like Esther remained in Susa. The environment was still hostile toward the Jews. And it's this, this environment that Esther steps into. And so when the story begins, we're introduced to King Xerxes, the, the king of Susa, and Queen Vashti. Now, King Xerxes holds a week-long party and asks Vashti to come to see him and his nobles because he wants to show her off because she's apparently really beautiful. And she says no. 
The king is obviously furious. She's hum she just humiliated him and he does not take lightly to this. So Vashti is stripped of her position and title. She can never again be in the king's presence. And so Xerxes, Xerxes wants a new queen. So his, visor, his advisors hold an event for him to pick a new queen, someone that they think will be better than Vashti to take her place. All these beautiful women are brought to the palace where they prepare for a whole year before seeing him. They eat special food, they have all these special beauty treatments, and basically they train themselves to try to win Xerxes' affections. Now our main character, Esther, is a Jewish orphan being raised by her uncle Mordecai, and Esther is one of the women picked to be part of this horrific version of the bachelorette. And as we find out, Esther wins. She wins the contest, if you can call it a win. And the king is attracted to her more than any other woman, and he crowns her queen. Now, Esther's true identity, her Jewish heritage and her name were kept hidden. Her uncle Mordecai had always taught her to hide that part of her. So she did not tell the king. Now, her uncle Mordecai, one day, he was hanging out by the palace gates, and he overhears two of the palace guards talking about assassinating the king. And he tells Esther, who then tells the king, and the king then has these guards killed. Mordecai gets the credit for foiling this plot, and it's recorded in one of the king's history books in the king's presence. So he's watching this whole thing happen. But good old Xerxes soon forgets about the whole ordeal. Now the story then jumps to introduce a noble in Susa among the royal officials named Haman the Agagite. The king honors Haman for God knows what, we don't know, across the land, but, but uh, he's, the king orders that everybody who sees Haman in his presence has to bow down to him and pay him respect. And so wherever he goes around the citadel, around the city, everyone bows. Everyone, that is, except Mordecai, who refuses to bow down. Haman finds out and becomes furious. He starts, he, he starts plotting to kill Mordecai and then decides that killing Mordecai isn't enough. And so Haman resolves to kill all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom, to kill Mordecai and all of his people. Mordecai find, finds out about the plan, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and then goes out to the palace gates, wailing. Esther finds out about this, and uh, Mordecai tells her about Haman's plan, and, and says, why don't you plead with the king for the Jews' survival? Mordecai says to Esther that perhaps you've become queen for such a time as this. Now, Esther is more than a little cautious because she knows that queen or not, if she goes before the king uninvited and he doesn't extend to her his royal scepter as a sign that he wants her to be there, she'll be executed. And so finally, she gathers up the courage and decides to approach the king, whether or not she lives. But instead, she devises a plan to throw more banquets for him, more parties, to get him happy before she makes her request. The king happily accepts her invitation, and she tells him to bring Haman to these banquets as well. After which, she will present a request to the king. 
So Heyman is uh, feeling pretty happy because uh, he's been invited with the king to this exclusive banquet put on by Esther. But every time Haman walks outside, he sees Mordecai sitting there refusing to bow. And this just pushes all of Haman's buttons, and he can't let it go. So he, he decides to move up his execution attempt or his assassination attempt, and he plans to kill Mordecai the next day. Well, that night, the king can't sleep. And so he calls an attendant in to read him a bedtime story from the annals of the king. The attendant just so happens to read the part about the failed assassination attempt on Xerxes' life and Mordecai stopping the whole thing. And Xerxes is like, yeah, I forgot all about that. Did I ever send Mordecai a thank you note or a gift or anything for saving my life? And his attendant says, no, you never did anything. At that exact moment, Haman is walking through the palace to go tell the king that he wants to kill Mordecai that night or the next day. But before he gets to make his request, Xerxes stops him and says, hey, what should I do for someone that I really want to honor? Haman thinks the king is talking about him. So he answers, put a crown and a robe on this person and give him a parade around the city on one of your best horses. The king says, hey, that's a good idea. Go and do exactly that thing for Mordecai the Jew who's sitting at the gate. So reluctantly, Haman parades Mordecai around the city. And he can't stand it. And after he's done, he runs home in grief. That night, Xerxes and Haman go to Esther's banquet, where the king enjoys more food and drink. And finally, at this banquet, the king asks Esther what request he can grant her. Esther replies that she and her people have been plotted against that a man has planned to kill all her people in the kingdom and her along with them. The king is appalled. He asks, who would do such a thing? And Esther exclaims, this vile person, Haman, your official that's sitting right next to you. Well, Xerxes is enraged and he has Haman seized and killed in the exact same way that Haman had planned to kill Mordecai. All of Haman's assets are taken and given to Esther and Mordecai, and Mordecai is made a royal official by Xerxes. In the end, what was going to be the month that all the Jews were killed in the kingdom became the day that all the Jews were saved from destruction. Esther and Mordecai make it a national holiday for the Jews called Purim, and give instructions to their people to celebrate this annually by feasting and drinking and giving presents to each other, giving gifts to the poor, so that they will never forget how they escaped total annihilation. So here's the story about the salvation of the Jews from genocide. And there's definitely a happy ending. Everyone's saved. All the immediate enemies in the story are destroyed. There's a big party at the end. But the Jews, they aren't celebrating this self-congratulatory occasion. I mean, they're not saying, hey, everyone, we're so strong and great that we defeated all our enemies. We're invincible. We can't lose. They're not saying that. What they are saying is that we, we could lose. We could have lost. And we almost did. In fact, we barely made it. 
They're throwing themselves a party for barely making it. I mean, when was the last time you threw yourself a party for getting a C- on your final? We don't do that. We celebrate victory most of the time, right? Not narrow escape. Now, the book of Esther is sometimes read in conjunction with Psalm 124, which we read this morning. And what I appreciate about this psalm is the perspective it takes on God's hidden nature. It says this, it says, If the Lord had not been on our side, let, let Israel say, If the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This psalm recognizes some pretty bad things. It recognizes that people almost attacked us as, as the, uh, the readers, that anger flared against us, that there were raging waters that we just endured. But the psalmist writes, if the Lord had not been on our side, things would have been worse. I want you to think about this pandemic. It's a really difficult thing. Our hospitals are overrun, people are getting sick, many are dying. But God does seem to withhold the full brunt of the pandemic. And if God were not on our side, perhaps this would be so much worse. And I'm reminded by this psalm that this is sometimes how God works. He doesn't completely eradicate trouble or tragedy, but he also withholds the full impact of it. And the psalm recognizes that. I think we often have a perspective that if God is with us, we will always see complete and total victory. But that's just not the case. Sometimes, though, God's grace is seen in barely escaping by the skin of our teeth. That's also God's power. That's also God's salvation. And that's also God's hand at work. Maybe God, maybe God is hidden to us because we think he's only here when we conquer everything instead of recognizing his gracious presence in every narrow escape. At this time, I'll invite Joel to lead us in a song response. Well, we want to respond now uh, by singing and um, I imagine as Pastor Jason was sharing whether it was reflecting on the pandemic or other things going on in each of our own lives maybe something came to mind where god feels hidden a place that god feels uh, unseen in our own journeys and our own walks or in the walk of our the life of our nation or around the world and i just want to invite you to bring that to mind to keep that in mind as we sing and declare um, the truth about god's faithfulness and about God's presence, even when, uh, even when we are unaware. So let's uh, let's sing this together. Mm -hmm. 
is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, and through the storm, He is Lord. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. Oh, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds it in the veil. Let's sing that again when darkness seems. When darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace oh in every high and stormy gale oh my anchor holds within the veil my anchor my anchor alone cornerstone the weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm He is Lord Lord of all Oh we sing Christ alone Christ alone Say 
for communion I invite you if you have not already go grab your communion elements your bread and your cup you can use uh, whatever you'd like uh, as we enter into this time the book of Esther tells us that this celebration that they talk about of Purim was established in response to the narrow escape from Haman's genocidal plans for the Jews and so when Jews celebrate this, they get pretty excited, yelling and cursing Haman and feasting and drinking as a part of their festive tradition. It's a way to rejoice in God's deliverance from death and disaster. As Christians, we also have an ancient tradition where we celebrate our deliverance from death and tragedy, and it's this. At the communion table, while we may not feast or get drunk like we read about, we do eat and drink as a way to celebrate and remember our deliverance from sin and destruction. The elements of the bread and cup symbolize the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his victory through the cross. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are able to celebrate and be grateful for God's grace in our lives, for eternal and abundant life, no matter the present circumstances. And at this time, I invite you to gather your bread and cup as we gather around the virtual communion table. And so let's read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At this time, 
I invite you to gather your elements and partake of them, after which Mide will be leading us in a song of response. Lord, may these elements be to us the body and blood of Jesus. May they remind us of your hidden but very present nature. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.